there's this phrase that's, if you share your bed, you should share your finances. And I think that's really cute and really like a fun thing to live by. But I also don't think that it's backed up by the numbers. Welcome to Beyond the Dollar, a podcast where we have deep and honest conversations about how money affects our well-being. I'm Sarah Lee Kane. And I'm Garrett Philbin. We want to give you a space to explore your relationship with money, the guilt, stress, exhilaration, and fear. No topic is taboo. In this episode, we chat with Bryn Conroy, the author of the Feminist Financial Handbook, which is a book that provides real motivation and resources for real women who may be struggling, not only those who have already accumulated wealth. We talk about what it means to maintain autonomy in your relationship when it comes to your finances, as well as what separate accounts may be necessary for you both and how to look out for your best interests as well as your partners. Okay, so Sarah and I are pretty obsessed with the books and they've had a massive impact on our financial lives for the many that we've read. Now, one of those that stands out is You Are a Badass at Making Money by Jen Sincero, whose insights on the emotional side of money are as amazing as her sense of humor is and here's some good news you can read the book for free okay well not actually reading unless you count listening to an audiobook as reading but i do so we'll count it and right now you can get two free audiobooks by signing up for a free trial of audible you'll get a free 30-day trial which you can cancel at any time before that and you won't get charged plus you'll get to keep the two free audiobooks completely free Did you hear that? That was free, free, and free again. I say it so many times, you'll remember it. And if you do stay on, membership starts at $15 a month, which includes one audiobook a month, plus a 30% discount on any additional audiobook. To start your free trial and to nab those two free audiobooks, head on over to www.beyondthedollar.co backslash audible. That's www.beyondthedollar.co backslash A-U-D-I-B-L-E. Don't forget to check out resources we shared in this episode, including a guide to using your values to help drive your financial decisions, head over to www.beyondthedollar.co. Hey, get ready, grab a seat, and let's go Beyond the Dollar. Welcome, Bryn, to Beyond the Dollar. We are so, so, so excited to have you here. Oh, thank you for inviting me. I'm really excited. Well, as of recording, I don't think your book, Feminist Financial Handbook, is out yet, but I think it's coming out in October. Is that or end of October? Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. It's actually October 15th. Okay, so yay, it will be out. So everyone go to Amazon or wherever books are sold and just buy a gazillion copies and send all your do friends. Do it, do it, do it, do it. <laughs> I personally can't wait to get my hands on a copy. And so we brought you on today. We, we wanted to tackle this topic where I think even couples who've been in relationship for a while are kind of afraid to talk about, which is the idea of maintaining autonomy in a relationship in regards to like your finances. So in your book, you really talk a lot about relationships maybe going sour. You know, the unfortunate statistic is like nearly half of couples in the US end up in divorce. You talk a lot about how, you know, why don't we insure against divorce or even like the death of a partner? Like, why is that so dangerous not to think about those things? There are a few reasons. The first is that even if you live in a community property state where you go through litigation and the court kind of figures things out fairly for you, getting the money together for a lawyer is super important. So let's say that you have all joint accounts, right? That means anybody can access the money legally, doesn't 
matter. Like, so if your partner drains that account at the beginning of your divorce, you're in trouble. You don't have any cash. You don't have any assets to even get the representation you need in order to get all of your assets split fairly. And so that's a massive problem. It's kind of another problem too, that when we get married, we just, or even just enter a relationship because not everybody gets married. We assume that things are going to be good forever. We assume that we're going to defy the odds because that's what love does to us, right? We think we're special and that this has never happened to anybody else before. And that's why we're in love and everything's magic. But when we look at the numbers, like we do with everything else in personal finance, just like you said, Sarah, it's it's ridiculous how high that divorce rate is. And the odds of it happening to you in the next 20 years is, I believe it's 48% here in the US. And then in Canada, it's 40%. So... Yeah, definitely dangerous to not think about that because I probably fall into the camp where I'm like, nothing's ever going to happen. I'm going to be married to my husband forever and ever and ever. You just never know, right? (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, you might. I mean, like a little more than half of people do in that boat, but that's a pretty big gamble. So, What do you say to those who say, oh, you're just being a negative Nancy? Like, I don't, like, why should I think about this? If I think about it, it means I will get divorced or something will happen. Yeah, so... I got to be completely honest with you guys. I have been divorced. And the first time that I got married, I was totally in that camp of we're just going to be in love forever. And we're starting this relationship out on trust and we're going to have a joint account. Um, And a few years later, our relationship completely fell apart. It was really hard to be one of those people who thought that they were above the odds and then to find yourself kind of in a wrecked financial situation later. So again, really nice to think that you're magical and special. It's something that I can tell you from experience is just not true half the time. So is that one of the main reasons, or I guess what were some of the main reasons for wanting to write the feminist financial handbook, personal experience, things that you were seeing with friends and people around you kind of what were those main motivators? Yeah, definitely. Throughout my life, I've seen, I was actually raised in a household where feminism was a dirty word. When I told one of my family members that I was writing this book, they were like, oh, that's okay. Feminism means something different now. It's not like you're Gloria Steinem or anything. And I was like, mom, what's wrong? Oh, I just outed my mom. Um, What's wrong with Gloria Steinem? And so it's something that I've learned through experience. I've watched a lot of women in my life go through some situations that are not ideal. I've been through some situations myself that are not ideal. And whenever my publisher approached me asking me to write this book, especially at this period in time, I think it's something that's really important. I was also a little bit annoyed because I had just been to a conference where there was a man who was a keynote speaker who was promoting his book for women's finances. And I found that really annoying (laughs) because like, we have plenty of female writers who can do the same thing. So I felt like it was really important to have something out there that had the word feminine in front of it because it's not a dirty word and it's something that I think our culture needs to embrace a little bit more if we're going to actually reach economic equality. Mic drop. <laughs> like, yes. <laughs> I love it. I really appreciate the story that you shared via email actually just before this recording about how you're raised 
uh, Mormon. And that really had a large impact on how you really perceive gender roles and money management. Can you just kind of expand on that a little bit for our listeners? Yeah, there were two main areas, I guess. That's really a two-part question. Um, As far as gender roles go, it was an odd time to grow up being Mormon, right? Because it was the 90s, early 2000s, and women were entering the workforce and that was becoming more acceptable. The church was also actually starting to endorse divorce whenever there were cases of domestic violence, which was something that they did not do prior to the 90s. And there was also this extreme expectation, though, that women would stay at home and raise the children. That was the most holy calling that you could have. And in my head, I was a little bit mixed up because I thought I was going to do that and also be this CEO and work in international marketing. And I was going to do both those things and there was going to be no conflict. And so there was really always been kind of a deep conflict within myself between those two identities and both of which I was encouraged towards. There's also a lot of power dynamics within that religion um, regarding women and men. Men are allowed to hold the priesthood, women are not. There's a lot of issues with conversion therapy for the LGBT community that's still going on today. I don't know if you guys listen to Imagine Dragons, but their drummer's LDS, and he has this huge campaign about it. Um, It's really important and a cool thing to watch him kind of produce and show the world. But economically, you pay tithing in the Mormon church, 10% of your income, and you also are able to receive a lot of economic support from the church should you hit a hard period in your life which is an amazing thing. There's a lot of good things about the LDS church, and that is one of them. They take care of their own. But (laughs) the flip side of that is they really try to push fiscal responsibility. And I think that's a good thing because they don't want anyone ending up in a situation where they have to get help, right? And so when I was growing up, a part of my education, even though I was supposed to be this Molly Mormon stay-at-home mom, was also how to manage money, how to handle debt, I learned a lot about the snowball method growing up before Dave Ramsey popularized it, I believe. And yeah, so there was definitely a lot of good economic education, but then also a lot of kind of hindering ideas around gender roles. And just going back to the idea of maintaining autonomy, you know, when you were growing up with that conflict, how challenging was it to maintain autonomy in your relationship as well as maintaining autonomy in your financial life? By the time I was in my first marriage, I was having serious questions about the doctrine and dogma of the religion, but I was still trying to stick with it. I was still trying to believe. And because like I said, there's a lot of good things along with the bad things. But also during that marriage, the church came out with something, a huge campaign around Proposition 8, which was this California legislation that delegalized gay marriage. It was before the Supreme Court ruling. It was this huge thing. And they actually tried to get us to call people in California, like a phone bank campaign to try and tell people how to vote. And at that point, I stopped paying my tithing. And it was just, it was this huge thing. I had a really big problem with the church getting that involved in other people's religion and the effects of state laws. And so in my relationship, I maintained a lot of my own financial autonomy. I had kind of gotten to that 
point where I was confident enough to say, no, this is my money. The church is not going to use it to do things that I don't agree with. And at that point, I was the primary breadwinner in my house. So it kind of didn't matter what he thought. <laughs> so our household didn't pay tithing. <laughs> hey, don't, don't, don't hesitate in saying that. It's okay. Like, own that. <laughs> I mean, that's impressive for you to have that kind of confidence and to stand up for something that you feel really strongly about that. I don't know if I can say statistically that that's the exception versus the norm, but it's hard, whether it's in the church, whether it's society in general with gender norms and expectations or between men and women, right? Who's going to be earning, who's going to be staying at home, right? Just society at large. And I know in your, in the outline for the book, you kind of talk about that as well. Like if there are women who are in a similar position that you are not necessarily in the church, but are kind of facing external dynamics that aren't necessarily in their favor, how to find some confidence and to find the ability to kind of stand up against these institutionalized things that have a lot of existing power and kind of say it should be done this way. I think we're living in a really interesting time for that because I really think there's a lot of power in sharing your story and hearing what other people have been through. Because I think for a long time, we have not really had a forum to discuss all of these feelings and all of these things. And I think that with A, the explosion of the internet and B, our current political landscape, we're really seeing a lot of people open up and share those ideas. So my advice would be to go out and seek those voices. If you feel some specific way, if you feel insecure or you feel like you can't do something, A, you can go out and learn how to do it. Google is pretty good. <laughs> you, you don't always want to trust those results, just like everything kind of you want to look into things and see if the information you're getting is accurate, but it's a great place to start to get some of that information. Like if you want to learn more about investing or whatever it is, by the way, women are better at investing than men when they actually do it. So know that it's something that you can do and you can accomplish. It's really just a confidence thing. And the second thing is just seek out those stories because I think that's really how we are built as human beings. Like we want to connect with other people. And I think the more we realize that other people are experiencing the same feelings or the same economic trials or tribulations as we are, the more confidence we will have in knowing that we're not alone and feeling like we can band together and do something about it. That part about sharing your story is just so important because when you said women are better investors than men, I know in the looking over the book, it was like, however, where their disadvantage is that when they grow up, oftentimes it's the boys that are told about, like that the fathers talk to their sons about investing in money. However, they don't talk to their daughters necessarily about it. So just to have that conversation existing and knowing that that is out there in the world, then that can allow women to say, oh, actually, yeah, it's not that I am not good at it. It's simply that like I'm kind of starting, you know, five steps behind in the race to get started. And then it can help them see that, it's oh, it's not that I am bad at this or I'm not inherently good at it. It's just I am starting from like I wasn't supported in that way and kind of the always hate to super broad strokes institutions, but it's just kind of accepted, right? 
boys talk about money and finance and math. And then you're just starting from a position of a disadvantage. Absolutely. And I think that that's something that we have to recognize too, is that a lot of this stuff is systemic and a lot of it's stuff that we don't even think about. So if you're a father or a mother and you realize, oh crap, I actually am doing this. That doesn't mean you're a bad person. It just means that you've been socialized within this culture and we're at a unique point in time right now where we can look at what we're doing and change it. We can recognize it, acknowledge it, and then modify our behavior. Yeah, I love that. I, I'm just thinking, you know, as you and Garrett were discussing, the, just bring it back to a couple, let's just say a heteronormative couple. What can couples do to really just encourage each other in that respect? So, you know, for example, I was really, really not confident in investing for a long time. And it wasn't really until my husband sat me down, we had a very great conversation about that, that it really pushed me to learn more about it. And now I am very, very confident in it. And now he's a little bit not as confident in other aspects of finance and I'm showing him books and websites and things like that. And so it's always been a very open and honest dialogue between each other. But you know, what if you're in a relationship where you don't necessarily have those open conversations or what are some ways that couples can really, or people in relationships can approach those conversations? When we're talking about the separate finances thing specifically, I know that's not exactly what your question is about, but for for that specific question, I think that you need to address that early on in your relationship. If you've been like 20 years and you're managing your money together and all of a sudden you're like, all right, we need to separate things, like that's going to raise red flags, understandably so. Like it might just be better to keep on going on and I don't know. Or if you feel like you can have that conversation, go ahead. I certainly don't want to split up anyone's marriages over statistics here. But with the investing thing or talking about money in general, I would say a lot of people say that the two things that split up marriage the most are money and, oh, I forget the other one like sex, I guess. Infidelity? Infidelity, yeah. It's something with sex. It's something with sex. Some, you know, like, we'll just put that up there. The big three letters, just S-E-X. That's it. Take all the credit. So what So what you're saying is like someone cheats on another person, that's the end of the relationship? Like that's the deal breaker? <laughs> yeah, well, or if, or, if, or if no one's happy in bed, I mean, like that could put a damper on things. But I really think that those two things boil down to communication and selfishness at the end of the day. And I think that if you are not communicating well about money, you're probably not communicating well about other things as well. And so for that, I wouldn't even focus on the finances. I would maybe try to get real with your partner and talk about your communication problems. Or if you need to, if you feel like this would be beneficial to you, maybe go into couples counseling and figure out those communication problems. And then I feel like the money should probably resolve itself. I think money is just one of the harder things to talk about. So it's one of the top things that people bring up when really the underlying problem is communication. Yeah. So interesting because I I had a few conversations. I'm not going to go into too much detail because it's not my story, but the more we were talking, the more it became, this has nothing to do with money, what we're talking about. Even though it started off as this is my, my budgeting challenge or whatever it was. And yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And I do like your answer about the separate finances. I think that's great. And everyone out there listen to everything she says and buy her book. (laughs) I do want to go back to the idea of in your book, you talk about really advocating separate finances, but you also really talk about the difference between that and secret finances. So can you just 
talk a little bit about that for listeners? Yeah, definitely. So the idea of having separate finances is not that you're hiding money from your partner. That's bad. (laughs) That's lying. That's like financial infidelity. You don't ever want to be lying to your partner about money. Having separate finances means that you're communicating about it. Maybe you guys do have joint accounts, but you each also have your separate savings. Maybe you keep everything separate. It really just depends on the individuals and what you two decide. But having that separate money is kind of, you can view it as an insurance account or just as personal autonomy or whatever, however you want to kind of frame it is really important. But again, you have to do that with the full knowledge of your partner. I love that. Kat Alford is also in the personal finance community because she's great. So what she does, I can say this because she's said it pretty much everywhere on social media and her blog posts is that her and her husband, I think they designated either an annual or monthly budget and they put it in a prepaid card. So I think it's like 50 bucks a month in a prepaid card. And so they know that they're going to spend the $50, but it doesn't matter what it's on because it's already been set aside for their separate finances, which I think is a great idea. You know, it's a really great example of like, I know what's going on. We both know what's going on, but we still have that sense of independence because I now can go sneak out and buy you a present with that $50 if I want to. Right. Definitely. Definitely. So do you think that couples should have the conversation and not just have like a separate kind of fun fund for themselves, but almost like an insurance fund in case they are that 50% like, or, you know, how do you frame that conversation? Right. Because if one out of every two marriages is going to end in divorce, it almost seems like, well, that's the rational thing to do, but that's like the least unsexiest conversation, you know, <laughs> getting back to that, that could probably ever be had and one that could drum up a whole bunch of insecurity potentially in a partner. And that's, again, kind of underlying issue in and of itself. But yeah, I'm just kind of curious as to, are those the same thing? And if not, like how you kind of navigate the conversation for a couple who's thinking of trying to take that on. Definitely. So maybe a few beers. Part- Is that just... <laughs> That always helps. That helps get the conversation flowing. What I would say is that, okay, so my my opinion is not very popular in the personal finance community. That's the first thing. There's this phrase that's, if you share your bed, you should share your finances. And I think that's really cute and really like a fun thing to live by. But I also don't think that it's backed up by the numbers. And so... When we're talking about having this conversation with your partner, a big thing that comes up whenever I talk about this is trust. Like, oh, well, you must not trust your partner. And I don't think it's so much about trust because for me, when I have separate finances from my partner, I'm not looking over bank account statements. I'm not checking in every five minutes with like what that money is being spent on. I just kind of trust them. So I think there's multiple ways to establish trust. And my favorite way to kind of get into this conversation is to just be like, listen, hey, I respect you. I'm madly in love with you. What we have is magic and it's never going to end. But there's also these numbers out there. And I know that someday I might hurt you. And I love you and respect you enough that I want you to protect yourself. So let's do this thing where we manage our money together. We both know what's going on, but we each have our own funds to kind of demonstrate that love and respect for each other autonomously. I love it. I don't care if it's an unpopular opinion. It's a great one. (laughs) It really is. And I, I completely, completely agree. I think... So coming from a very traditional upbringing, it's one of those beliefs where if you're married, it's for life. It doesn't matter how, you know, air quote, unhappy you are, you're going to make it work. And I think there is still that widely held belief and I'm not criticizing or judging it. It's just, I think when people have that belief, they think the same thing with their finances is that, well, we're going to be together forever. So why not share a bank account? Why not share, you know, credit card or 
uh, the deed on the house, things like that. But you're right. Like divorce is getting more common. The statistics prove it. And again, you just never know, right? You just never know. I actually interviewed one woman for the book. Her name's Terry Hecker and she's older. And when she was raising her kids, like in the seventies and eighties, she wrote this book called ever since Adam and Eve. And what it was about was kind of like defending housewifery in this age when women were starting to enter the workforce in mass. And years and years later, I believe it was their 40th wedding anniversary. Her husband had a drink of wine and it was the first time he had had alcohol in his whole life. And it turns out he's an alcoholic and it split up their marriage. And they had had a perfect, like happily ever after marriage up until that point. And then something that was just so completely unpredictable destroyed things. Like it's not necessarily that your partner is a bad person. They might have something that comes up that you just don't know about or that they don't know about later down the line. A life changes a lot over the course of 20, 40, 60 years. And so just because the person you marry today is awesome doesn't mean they'll be the same person or that you'll be the same person further down the line. And especially since women fare worse financially in a divorce, just what are some of the reasons for that? So listeners can kind of understand like what are some of the systemic or uh, just inherent reasons as to why that's true. And also what are some of the ways in addition to having like a separate bank account that women, if it's possible, kind of mitigate the impact of that divorce? Definitely. So there, this is such a loaded question. There's so many reasons. The first is that women get paid less money for the same work. We, uh, aren't encouraged towards investing as much. So our net worths tend to be lower. We have historically not had our own economic power. Um, We live in a world where now we get divorced, but we are still living under a system that assumes that when we get married, we'll be financially taken care of. And we have a lot of areas like the pay gap where we still need to catch up to compensate for that fact that we don't have that financial security anymore. And I'm a big advocate for the separate finances because it allows you to initially get that legal help, right? When you're going through a divorce, we also have a judicial system that is dominated by men and they tend to view women as greedy and trying to take from the husband a lot. I've had a lot of friends and family members go through that where you have this super compliant woman in a divorce, yet she's being painted as like this evil person trying to steal the man's money. And I think that a lot of judges still have that opinion and still let that perspective kind of taint their rulings. But so you have the money to go get the lawyer, right? And you have a little bit of money to kind of float yourself until things get decided in court. But after that, what do you do? Your money's going to be drained at some point, right? Like that savings account is not going to last forever unless you've built it up to millions of dollars and you have it all invested and you are a fire person, right? Like that would be an awesome situation to be in, but most people just aren't. So what you need to do is actually build up a skill set so that whenever something like this does happen, or even if your partner just passes away or gets sick or disabled or something, you have a way to bring in money on your own. That was one of your takeaways. Was her name Terry, um, who you mentioned had been with her partner, right? Kind of that idea of, you know, especially since she had, I think she'd been at home, like been the, to assume the role of the housewife. Yes. Or less. And so that was, I think, one of the takeaways of like, you know, for her seeing like then without having those skills in place, then she really was left like up a creek without a paddle. So 
yeah, being able to keep up on skills. And I get that that's like a lot of extra time potentially in addition to everything else that expected, but yeah, kind of like an insurance policy against, and I liked how you put it where it's like, you may have no idea that your partner, that something will happen to your partner and your partner might not even know, like with her husband, that he had a drinking problem, but there are just some, you can't foresee some of these things at all. So just kind of being proactive about it, even if it seems a little, I don't know if over the top is the right word or excessive. Yeah. And I think what I'm taking really away from your story and a lot of the stories in the book is that having separate finances or being really proactive about your own money isn't about not being a good partner. It's just about being a good person because if you have kids or, you know, if you don't want to be a I hate this term, but like burden on society, like needing assistance, things like that, then it's really crucial that you do take care of yourself as well, right? Like if you think about being in a relationship, you're two separate people becoming a couple. You're not like two halves becoming a whole, like to go really cheesy if you talk about it, right? So you're two separate people and you happen to be in this relationship. And so I think if people are really nervous about having separate finances or insuring against divorce or insuring against you know death with a partner maybe think of it that way hopefully that will that will help I just want to clarify one thing really quick too like I've talked a lot about how like I wanted to go out and be a CEO and rule the world or whatever and how Terry was a domestic homemaker like a stay-at-home mom I want to clarify that like you don't have to go out and work if part of you contributing to the that partnership is staying at home and raising the kids and taking care of the house there is a lot of economic value in that especially when you take into consideration the costs of daycare now which can often cost as much as college tuition but the point is is keeping up those skills and that savings so that if something does happen you have something that you can kind of fall back on even if it's just networking and a professional group, something to keep you relevant and current should the worst happen. And again, that doesn't necessarily have to be divorce. It could be widowhood or having your partner become disabled. So just because you're not going out and earning money doesn't mean you're not economically contributing. Thank you so much for clarifying that because that is so, so true. I think it's making sure that you are in a position to make money if you need to. It's not necessarily you you're doing it now, but if you need to go out and make money or if you need to, you know, let's say withdraw your 401k and figure out how to do it in the best way, you at least have those skills to be able to sort of produce income in a way, you know, that doesn't require you to, I don't say start all over again, but to really struggle, right? Struggle less. Yeah. That's a really good clarification. And to kind of add one final thing there is like to keep up on skills that society will deem are worth paying for in a certain way because you're right like staying at home with the kids is absolutely as much if not more and sometimes harder work but it's just that society normally doesn't give a lot of value to that so it's saying what are some of the skills that society would compensate financially Um, but that's a very different thing than what is actually worth a lot of money or is hard work etc Yeah. And in this day and age, I think like it's especially important with tech skills to like 
tech skills are going to become more important in every single workplace ever. I've known women who have retired, like they've been nurses they've retired because things went digitized. They were like, I can't do this. I'm old and I, I can't do it as fast as the kids. And this isn't my job. My job is like nursing and taking care of people and making sure they stay alive. And so if you're going to focus on one area, I would really focus on tech within whichever field is your specialty, because especially as AI becomes more important in the near future here, that's going to be something that you're going to need if you want to actually get paid. Yeah. And I would also add any skill that can help any business make money. What I do, I don't, in some ways I'm tech savvy, in many ways I'm not. So I don't necessarily code, but I do write content for companies that help them make money. And so that is a very relevant skill. And of course, I've had to shift the ways in which I create it as the industry changes, but I'm also keeping up with that as well. And so nursing will always be there, you know, hospice care will always be there, but it's really how do you shift your skills or how do you navigate the landscape to make sure you're still relevant and up to date? Yeah. So as we're wrapping up, we always like to ask our guests this question. Actually, you're the first one that we're asking. We always we like to ask time. them, but you first. We're always going to like to ask them. You first, because we forget. We just get so excited about the conversations. Is, is how are you using money to live beyond the dollar? For me, I have a special needs child. And so what I have done over the past few years is I've realized that I cannot devote the same amount of overtime to my craft as much as my peers can. I have tons of therapies every week and just more intense needs from my kids. And so what I've learned to do is recognize my value and up my rates so that while I am not pursuing crazy fire money wealth, I am able to comfortably support my family and enjoy the time that I have with them now. I love that. And just for those who doesn't don't know what financial independence retire early, and some of them are pretty crazy, but love yours. <laughs> oh yeah. And well, and I well, and I love a ton of fire people too. Just for me personally, in the context of my life, it's a competing goal with what I need to do to meet my children's needs. And that's, that's fine. Right. Exactly. And love it. <laughs> Thank you so much. And say, what, what's the name of your book again and where can we find it? Yeah. So it's the feminist financial handbook. It is on Barnes and Noble and Amazon and yeah. All right. And also your website is femfrugality.com. Is that correct? It is. Yes. And I'm also on Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest, Facebook, femfrugality. <laughs> All of the things. <laughs> All the places. All of the places. <laughs> Bryn, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Beyond the Dollar. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe so you'll be the first to know when new episodes are released. Also, if you feel like putting your money towards the things that really matter is a challenge for you, then download our values-based spending guide. You'll gain clarity around what matters most to you in life, be able to name your most important values, and start thinking about how to only put your money toward those things. To download the values-based spending guide, go to www.beyondthedollar.co. Thank you again so much for listening, and we'll catch you on the next episode of Beyond the Dollar.